Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. You know, one of those cultures that we've talked about off and on quite a lot on this show doesn't even really have a name exactly, although some people have developed names for it, but it's sort of the, uh, we could call it experience design, the art of designing experience. And it's a, it's a really interesting phrase, experience design. Um, I can pat myself on the back a little bit in that I used it at a, at a very early point in the discourse for one very kind of short article that nonetheless made the rounds at the time. And it was only about like 2000, 2001. Uh, and what I was talking about is the way that the design of, you know, in, uh, let's say theme parks or rides or television or movies or just media in general, media culture in general, as we know more, as we know more about how the human sensorium works, how uh, we process reality in real time. Uh, how we, we learn more about proprioception, we learn more about visual system, we learn more about the cognitive system as it engages reality in, uh, in its flowingness. We can develop technologies that get closer and closer and closer to being able to sort of, you know, uh, nudge along or um, carry or direct or stimulate this very process of creating the way in which our, 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 our bodies and minds construct experience as an ongoing phenomenal event. So it's like those two worlds are getting closer and closer and closer. And so the design of technology was increasingly looking like um, the design of uh, experience. And that dovetails with a lot of other interesting kind of shifts that have been going on with other forms of experience design or what some people have called uh, earlier than me the experience economy where uh, the goal is not to create a product but to create an experience or to create a, a shift in the, in, in the user or the consumer um, in an interesting kind of way. Um, my wife uh, was once called a user interface designer, which meant that she worked on the front ends of technological systems, not just computer systems, but also objects and uh, uh, devices, um, systems that allowed people to do things, both consumer and not consumer, because it's always a problem when you know you got this really powerful computer, it can do all these amazing things with its algorithms, but if you can't figure out how the, the dude in the basement is going to work it, it's not worth very much. So you got to do this human interface point between like human anthropology and human consciousness and the machine, and that used to be called user interface design, but I think it's very significant that, that now this, that's called user experience design. Um, where it, the, the sort of object of technical work has shifted from the interface, from the machine that you're producing in order to connect with the user, to experience itself. Experience, which is a human category, not a technological category, experience itself is becoming the object of design. So there's this whole kind of technological, uh, you know, um, cultural, uh, you know, business direction towards shifting towards experience as an object at the same time of which there's this incredibly rich often underground culture of experience design which we would now say which at the time they weren't thinking about it when they started you know burning man and and uh you know the cacophony society and the suicide club before that and we've had john law on the show talking about 
the you know the uh, the old days of these kinds of immersive experiences that that aren't even they're not really theater they're not really stunts they're not really pranks they're not really uh, uh, you know um, initiation rites but they kind of share something of all of those um, that sort of you know, develops into what is now a, another aspect of our incre- increasingly weird mainstream, which is this kind of um, focus on transformative, bizarre, playful, immersive, sometimes challenging, sometimes sexy events, uh, where even to the point at which I, I think a lot of people these days, when they think about even in their greediest selves, what they're greedy for is not material objects so much as amazing experiences. So we're, we're really shifting in a lot of significant ways towards this, this point of um, designing experience. And, you know, along with that shift, like everything else, there's a lot of crap and hype and kind of boring stuff. And then you feel the kind of the, the always lame, lameifying power of like, corporate thinking, always lurking right on the edges. Even if the thing looks cool, you kind of look a little closer at it. But at the same time, there's this explosion of creativity coming up from the underground. So it's no longer underground. Like Meow Wolf, this, you know, immersive, you know, Phil Dickian, Terrence McKinnon, you know, uh, g- crew of experienced designers, essentially. You know, they, they scored this space in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and it's this huge hit. Everybody loves it. The kids love it. The straights from the Midwest love it. Everybody loves Meow Wolf, and now they're opening centers in Las Vegas and I think in somewhere in, in Colorado. And that's very much a sign of the way in which elements of Burning Man are moving forward, or not just Burning Man, but that kind of underground world of, uh, of creative otherness is going forward. And so it's, it's, again, one of these, you know, confusing mixes of multiple agendas going into the space. And uh, recently there, you know, and at the same time, there's a, a lot of immersive theater happening, things, people coming out of the theater world saying, we're tired of the black box, let's create events, Let's create store interactive stories that involve the audience that were, were immersive, and I've I've done a number of those things, and they're pretty fun. I mean, they're often a little bit short of what they could be, or quite a bit short of what they could be. But I, I I'm I'm still uh, pretty amazed by some of the things that people pull off. So recently, there was a, a an immersive event. I can't remember the title of it in the in San Francisco, and I wasn't able to go, but my a good friend, uh, Ferdinando Buscema, the Italian magician who we've also had on the show, um, who's a, a marvelous fellow and, a, and a, a very good, has a very good eye for things, said, well, there was one speaker you just had to check out. And it turned out to be the same woman who had written me, uh, because, who, who knew Jeff Kripal. So I was like, okay, Ida Benedetto is definitely going to be on the podcast, and this is that podcast. <laughs> so, Ida, with no further ado, welcome to uh, Expanding Mind. Hi, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here. That was a really fantastic introduction. Well, I, th- I think we're going to keep the fantastic going here. And I want to start out, well, like, let's see, I, I, I guess we could start out, no, I want to start with talking, a little, since we mentioned a little bit about that history of like when you, in the course of your the, of your career, because it is a career, of, of starting out doing underground events or semi-underground events with sextant works, more on the kind of, uh, you know, edgy seat of your pants level and then moving more and more towards 
producing these events as, as a consultant and, and really thinking about in a really deep way uh, what different possibilities there are and what the really core elements are that make events truly transformative, truly interesting. Where in that whole course did you first come across the Cacophony Society and the Suicide Club and the stuff that was happening in the Bay Area that you know really influenced me and a lot of a lot of my listeners. Uh, at what point did that in your journey did did you get inspired by that kind of stuff? Mm, well, um, you know, being based in New York, uh, I kind of grew up uh, going to a lot of events on the Lower East Side, going to places like ABC No Rio and events by the Madagascar Institute, and those. Um, you know, cultural um, misfit organizations definitely directly draw a lot of their lineage from the Cacophony Society. And so I got introduced to that stuff through people who had kind of trafficked back and forth between both coasts. Uh, and I even remember being on a panel with John Law at some point when the, the book, looking at all of this stuff came out, and I looked at the Cacophony principles and, and was just really blown away. I was like, this is an excellent recipe for making sure that you have like an incredible, um, you know, edgy experience. And so I, I was participating in stuff that was influenced by that before I had even heard of them um, and then began to hear about them. I think it was specifically actually a conversation I had with Jeff Stark where I wanted to understand the influences of all of these events that I was going to. And we were sitting in a cafe, a now defunct cafe in the East Village called Alt.Coffee, which some folks will remember that was at the edge of Tompkins Square Park. And I just asked him, you know, where where did you get these ideas from? Uh, and Jeff Stark runs a very influential email list called the Nonsense, Nonsense NYC. Um, yeah, so I think it was then, and that must have been 15 years ago or so. Well, one of the interesting things about that, and I mean, I guess we're jumping ahead a little bit, let's just go with it, is this idea of the recipe. Um, and I remember the one I really grokked that once was I was talking to Michael Michael, who's who's one of the you know uh, the the main board, one of the founders of Burning Man, who was in the Cacophony Society, and was kind of like partners with John Law when the Cacophony Society hooked up with with Larry and went out to the desert. And one of the things he said about that was really interesting is he's going to see the thing about the the history of Burning Man is is that you know and he didn't say this explicitly, but I will, you know, Larry gets all the attention and Larry's whole thing was like the city. It's about the city. We're going to build a city and we're going to be a city, you know, it's going to da da da. And he had this whole kind of vision and he goes, and, and Michael's basically saying he was a much more quiet sort who's sort of more likely to be the, the twinkly eyed mischief maker in the corner, you know, rather than the guy with the, uh, with the bullhorn. Um, although he can wield a good bullhorn, but he talked about the way that what cacophony provided for Burning Man was the social software, which I thought was a great phrase, because it, there is something like recipe-like or software-like or like rule-based, paradoxically, that allows these things that seem to take place so far away from the world of rules to occur. Uh, and it, it seems to me that a lot of your work has been about identifying and then developing and taking farther what that sort of rule set is about. Yeah, I'm a compulsive uh, pattern mapper. And so when I start to see different tendencies showing up across wildly different contexts, I can't help but follow the trail and try and figure out what the similarities are, what the ingredients might be. And that informed a lot of my recent research. I was looking at the 
design of transformative social experiences. Uh, and I did that by comparing sex parties, funerals, and wilderness trips. And, you know, most people think those might not have much in common, but I was operating under the assumption that they probably did have some important elements in common. And if I found expert practitioners at designing and convening those kinds of gatherings, I might find some core DNA that we can look at in order to figure out what goes into making a transformative social experience. If you're trying to create an experience that's falling short, why might it be falling short? What, how can you assess it? Uh, and so I did a bunch of research on that. But yeah, I think that's why when I finally saw the cacophony principles, I had done so much work at that point that was fundamentally transgressive, be it um, you know urban trespassing um, or you know socially transgressive or that kind of thing that when I saw the recipe or the principles, however you want to call it, I could recognize the deeper logic, the kind of master social software that went into creating that. Um, you call it social software. I can't remember who you said called it that. Michael, um, Michael, yeah. Michael, Michael. And there's also this notion of a pattern language, um, which comes from... Uh, this fantastic book about architecture and trying to look at what's naturally. his name. Oh, oh, I um, love that book, but I can't remember his name. Alexander. I know I should have this hey, at my fingertips. Hey. Um, are you Googling it? <laughs> I'll do, I'll do it. I'll do it. You, you keep um, going. But the, you know, and this, this is a book I want to say it was published in the seventies and it was looking at naturally occurring forms in, uh, you know, different urban and rural contexts where people are shaping the environment around them. And how can you identify patterns in that and then break those patterns down into component parts that you can then recombine in order to make what was described as like a lively context. And how do you just like what makes something lively uh, in terms of the built environment? That was the big question. And the interesting thing is that that book was so elegantly put together that it I think it did influence architecture, but really its main legacy is influencing the structure of the internet, which of course the authors could not have anticipated. But that I think is always a good sign of a, you know, excellent social software, if we want to say that it, it can jump forms. Um, yeah. And this is also what I really love in Jeffrey Kripal's work in terms of looking at how extreme religious experiences um, they jump cultures and they jump populations and you can still see the, the similar contours of the experience showing up in wildly different contexts. And that's when you know you have really excellent, you know, social and human software at play. Yeah, very well. Well, the, the guy's name is Christopher Alexander and it is a terrific book. It's just a beautiful book uh, to look at. It's the kind of thing that anybody, regardless of what you're interested in, will look at and find resonances. It's a, it's a really extraordinary uh, in that way. And we've already raised a lot of great topics, but I want to get some concrete stuff here and talk. And I know you've you've gone over this stuff a lot, but you know your first crew was uh, was called Sextant Works, and you did a couple of really uh, remarkable and you know actively illegal events, which is always interesting to me. I think the, sometimes we say transgressive or whatever, and it's important when it actually is illegal to say illegal. We did some things that had you know that had illegality in it because. Not just to be like, hey, I did something cool, it was actually illegal, but uh, more to the point that that is a kind of transgression that's very fundamental, even if it's, uh, it's a relatively innocuous act, um, there's something really profound about it that I think was, is part of the secret sauce of some events. So if you could just talk about just a couple of those things, you know, the night heron and, and the hotel or whatever, sure. you know, that, just to sure. give us a sense of what you were, what you were doing back in the day. Yeah, so that 
um, creative practice started when me and my partner at the time, Andy Austin, were driving around the Poconos in Pennsylvania. Um, and we were getting ready to kind of drive back into New York City. And I look down the road and I see what I think is a bar or a venue. I'm like, hey, let's stop there for a drink before we continue our drive back. And we pulled in and realized the place was abandoned. And you know, both of us had spent a fair bit of time in New York's underground culture. And so, you know, we accidentally pull into an abandoned building. Of course, we're going to let ourselves in. We start nosing around. Um, and it was like a dining hall of some point, some sort. And we got spooked thinking that somebody might have stopped to come in looking for us. And so we continued on our way. But I looked the place up and I pulled up, you know, satellite images and um, TripAdvisor reviews. And it turned out that it had been a honeymoon resort that had recently shut down. But the TripAdvisor reviews on this place were coming from people who had originally gone there for their honeymoons in the 70s and had returned for anniversaries in the 2000s and were devastated that it had was so poorly run at that point. But there was so much heart in these reviews that I became captivated by the place. I did a bunch of research. We ended up going back and scouting a bunch more. There were tons of these like abandoned cabins. It turned out the place had been repossessed by the county for tax fraud. And so it just had a very interesting backstory um, and interesting rooms. You had heart-shaped bathtubs and, uh, you know, round mattresses still very much intact, ceiling-to-ceiling -ceiling shag carpeting. So we designed an adventure there. We called it the Alyssa Couples Retreat. And we recruited seven couples who were willing to go on an adventure, really not knowing what they were getting into. Um, we didn't tell them where we were going. We did tell them that we didn't have permission to be going the place that we were going and recruited a bunch of our friends from, you know, different activities that we had been up to in, in New York, folks who we knew would love to help pull this off. And the experience went even better than we had anticipated. By the end of it, some people were asking us how we had gotten permission to use the place, uh, which we hadn't, and we made it clear to them ahead of time that we hadn't, but they were just so taken and felt so comfortable there that it was as if we had uh, gotten permission. And so we ended up keeping keeping it up. We just made more experiences. We did a photo scavenger hunt of the Domino Sugar Refinery. Um, we also did an infiltration of the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. And so after doing several uh, experiences like this, that built up to what we were most known for, which is a speakeasy in a dry water tower in Chelsea in Manhattan, which uh, was called the Night Heron. And so that, you know, I had, you know, grown up exploring the city. And so I had pictures of myself inside of a dry water tower. Um, and then, you know, uh, Nathan got really inspired and started exploring and we ended up creating this bar inside this dry water tower. The key to that was really the generosity system of, of admission. So you could only come once as the gift of somebody who had already been. Um, the rationale behind that was that this was a legitimate speakeasy and that it was an illegal drinking establishment. We had no permission to be there. And so we needed people coming to keep it secret, but we also didn't want it to just end up being our friends or folks close to us. So how could we get the invitations to move as far away from us socially as possible while still um, you know, not letting word get out? And so having the people who came gift forward admission, that's how we guaranteed both of those things would, would happen. So it ran for about seven weeks. Um, and that was, uh, I think, in the winter of 2013 now. Um, and it got tons of press afterwards. After we closed it down, I got a bunch of press. And then, you know, we started getting inquiries. People wanted to hire us to create experiences. So we did that for several years, some of which uh, usually are self-driven projects 
did involve trespassing. Um, that core element of transgression was really important to us, but some of the inquiries we got um, didn't necessarily involve trespassing. It was more about experience design, but we wanted to keep this core element of transgression really baked into the work. So what kind of transgression we would do really depended upon what the uh, what the ask involved. Um, we usually made sure that the ask involved some element of generosity. So if somebody wanted us to make an experience for them, we would not do it. It always had to be a gift from them to somebody else. Um, but somehow working in this element of transgression, because we found that if people were already trespassing or transgressing in some fashion, their sense of um, freedom and possibility just like goes through the roof. You know, if the first thing you do is something you think you're not supposed to do, uh, suddenly you question everything around you in the in, in an incredibly playful way, at least the way we tried to set stuff up. Yeah, very much. Well, I love the, the, the element of generosity you talked about there, because when I was when I was reading about it in, in terms of the night heron, um, I, I had also never really put it together that, of course, by having people fund somebody else's experience, you can also raise money to keep the thing going in this way that's not the same thing as selling tickets. I mean, even if it's kind of like selling tickets, because you're essentially selling a ticket, because it's somebody else's experience, it just shifts the whole logic of it. So it allows a certain you know, uh, 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 it solves a lot of problems at the same time. I had never quite thought of it that way. But um, but the generosity itself just seems like a, uh, it, it seems like a really important key. Certainly it was a really important key to, to Burning Man. And um, that that's a tricky one to do. And I think a lot of the other immersive theater thing, a lot of things, they don't really tune in a, 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 about that. So I'd like to hear you th- Talk a little bit more about generosity and maybe different ways you've tried to think about that, how important it is, how essential it is, and, and how it kind of, you know, it, it implies a sort of politics of experience. That's part of what I like about it. It's not just like, oh, I'm going to get a great experience. I've had my transformed experience. Now I'm going to go on. It's like there's some way in which that is linked to an other, another, somebody else's possible experience, some other future gathering. It, it, it kind of spills out of the self in a way that seems really, really key to me. So I, I'd, be, I'd be interested to hear how that's changed for you over the years. Mm, that's interesting. Well, in terms of sextant works, even before we did the Night Heron, when we discovered a location that we were interested in creating an experience at, we would always ask ourselves the question, what is the gift? What is the gift that we can help this location give to the guests that we bring there? And we would resist doing any experience design until we answered the question of what the gift is. Um, and so we had that mentality of of generosity or at least gift giving from the get-go and that ended up really fundamentally informing how the night heron worked and yeah it's interesting to think about theater because theater is so focused on this ticketing transactional model and I never wanted anything to do with tickets or ticket hustle so I think the gifting mindset kept us away from that and it also ended up making for a much more um, interesting client Uh, engagement experience when we had folks hiring us usually to create private experiences, sometimes to create stuff for things like charity galas. That filter of generosity also meant that the dynamic we had with the client was so much more lovely because they're they're focused on delivering a gift in some form or another, even if it is an experiential gift. Um, I think in terms of how that's changed over time, that's a good question. I think I I loosened up on the, uh, the generosity piece because over time I started to double down on this transgression component um, and how transgression makes 
for transformative experiences, which was what led to my later research. Um, and, and when did you take up that research? Were you already, did you do that on your own or, or as part of, uh, did you get a grant or whatever? It seemed like it was a fairly thorough ethnography of some of these, these, these un, you know, unusual zones. Yeah, I did most of it in the context of a graduate program, um, the School of Visual Arts Design Research Writing and Criticism Program. Sextant Works was getting so many inquiries from people who just wanted to come on our adventures. And we were always doing stuff that was so bespoke. There was no way we were going to be able to accommodate everybody. And I, I really hated creating this sense of FOMO, the sense of fear of missing out. So I wanted to figure out how to communicate better about what we were doing. And this program seemed like a good fit. But, you know, the kind of brilliance of a, a well-designed master's program is they pushed me to research and write about stuff that was different from the stuff that I had made, because that would kind of push my critical um, analytical skills more. Um, so I went into it with the intention of figuring out how to communicate what we were doing and also figure out what we were doing right that we might be taking for granted, just because we 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 were so consistently taking people farther than they expected and leaving them in kind of a more, uh, I don't know, grateful and delighted place than even we expected. So I wanted to, I wanted to figure that out. So I got into this grad program, ended up focusing um, the, the thrust of my inquiry, which was really around what, what are the design components of transformative social experiences? Like what, what are the core elements of them? Um, over the course of doing that program, the, my collaboration um, with ND kind of fell apart, um, which, you know, happens sometimes when you do wild adventures with people and don't have a plan and then they get too big for you to, <laughs> to manage. Um, but the research ended up being a really lovely experience just because I, I still have this memory in the first semester of putting together a slide with all the case studies that I wanted to look at in terms of sex parties, funerals, and wilderness trips. And I got to that list through a process of deduction. I, I realized that I was really interested in experiences that had some element of human enrichment. And so I went back to my big laundry list of experiences I was interested in and crossed off everything that didn't fundamentally have to do with human enrichment when it was at its best. And I was left with sex parties, funerals, and wilderness trips. And I remember telling one of my friends this, and he was like, oh, how Shakespearean. I was like, oh, shit, I must be onto something here. And I put pictures of each of those case studies on a slide to present to the committee to get approval to do this. And I'm just like, what the fuck am I up to? Like, what? who, who is doing this research? Um, and it seemed like an impossible task. Um, but I had that sense of like, fear about it as I realized what I was putting together that to me is always an indication that I'm on the right path. Yeah. You mentioned that in one of your, in one of your talks, you talk about the, the feeling of, 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 Oh fuck before some, you know, be, be at least, you know, before, you know, uh, put, you know, going to an event or, or doing an event. Uh, but it's, it, it opens up like all these questions of like, what am I doing? Who's going to show up? What's actually going to happen? What should I wear? And it really reminded me when you said it, it was like, you really pointed out that particular feeling and how similar that was to feelings I had had with other experiences, you know, going to Burning Man, things at Burning Man, things at, in, in, in the Bay Area that were underground parties that involve these kinds of interactive elements and, and the sense of, and it can be quite unpleasant. You're like, oh, wait, no, this isn't really, no, no, something's off. No, no, something's wrong. Where it's not, no, this isn't going right, you know. And, and to learn to recognize that that's actually a good sign. 
seemed to me um, both very insightful about the process, but also seems to contain a certain truth about what these things are doing when they're working well. Yeah, definitely. And I think there's also, there's an important distinction between that. What I've described is that, oh, fuck feeling. And it's the moment kind of as you're preparing to step across the precipice or, you know, the magic circle. That's my favorite term for it, which comes from game design, where you you wonder if you want to step across it and also if you are prepared to step across it. And that, that moment of um, being put so much into the present moment around your own fear of whether or not you're prepared, whether or not this is the right magic circle to step into that I've learned is the right sign. There, there are certain qualities of fear that are like the kind of back off, run away, move away fear. And that has a very different flavor to it. And I think spending time with your own fear and getting intimate with the different textures of it is gonna, yeah, for me at least it has become a really valuable compass for what is worth moving into and what is not. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, now I, I I can't. I was trying to keep the the religion and spiritual stuff, you know, towards towards the end, so we could go through some do this in a more orderly fashion. But I just can't help but but bring it up because it it you know it's it's so similar to you know initiation rites and to go you know formal processes of entering into communities. And there's so much of a similar kind of questioning: Is this really the community that I want to do? Am I really ready to sign up with this? The situation? Am I really ready to, you know, uh, uh, you know, to have that revelation or have that information um, uh, or that that experience opened up for me? What, what, what's going to happen to me? Is there going to be a way? Is, is there going to be a way back? Because there, there, in some ways, it isn't really. I mean, you can stop. You can, you can, you know, drop your path. But I was, I was in a, in a Twitter conversation this morning with some people about meditation and how recently there's been a lot more, and there should be even more, discussion about all the really uh, w- weird, bizarre, and sometimes really difficult things that can happen with meditation, including you know, psychotic episodes and uh, depression and dark nights of the soul and whatever. And one of the things the guy was saying is that you know, once you're once you've kind of committed to that path, and these things start coming up, you, you you can't just stop. You can't. You're already part of a process, and there's something about that knowing that you can't quite stop it once you go over that magic circle line. Um, that seems really intrinsic to what we're talking about here, which is why you're going to see it in religious initiation rites the world over. You know, some kind of entrance into secrecy or darkness, some kind of sense of threat, some kind of sense of fear, as if there's, you know, you know, demons or devils are, are, are hanging over the portal, even if the thing itself is, is full of love and light. And, there, you know, there's some sense of, uh, of uh, yeah, of a kind of imaginal pact, like you're making uh, uh, something that whose full consequences you can't know. And until you're willing to make that kind of pact... If you're always staying away from it, you can't really enter the circle. Yeah, totally. I think, and well, I think it's important to draw a bit of a distinction. And of course, the spiritual comes up in all of this stuff. If we're dealing with, you know, sex, death and survival, the the spiritual is really like breathing down your neck when you're engaged in any of those things. Um, from an experience designer standpoint, I do think it's important to consider what it's like to step out of the magic circle um, or to give people options for dialing their own experience kind of up and down, even when we're, they're within the magic circle. And this is where my, you know, which hat I'm wearing 
can vary a lot. Um, if I'm an experienced designer, I do realize that people are fundamentally consenting to, to something that they cannot completely know. And so there's a degree to which I'm taking a lot of responsibility for screening people to make sure that this is the right experience for them. Um, and then how do you, how do you craft that experience? So the process of stepping out of it, they do fully step out of it, even if they are changed by it, that that change is something that they have some sort of tools to grapple with once they come out of the experience. So that's me with my experience design hat on. And I think that very much applies to sex parties, funerals, and wilderness trips. If you're, if you're creating that kind of context, oftentimes I see people skip the, the step of designing the exit out of the magic circle. When you're talking about these religious experiences, it's it's different because there's a bit of a joiner mentality, right? Like once you step in, the whole point is not to step back out, mm. um, that your world completely shifts and changes around you. And that is where it gets dangerous because the potential for um, getting messed up in in a way where you can't tell if it's a good messed up or a bad messed up is is pretty, pretty high. I mean, I love, I, I listened to your episode about meditation and just your ruminations about that. And I thought that they were so great because I had never heard anybody talk about it in that way where you're giving people permission to perhaps once you're in that space, maybe don't follow directions, maybe explore a little, maybe see what comes up. But that's certainly been my experience of meditation is that as soon as you kind of open that box and see what's inside you or see what's whatever's on the other side of wherever your meditation practice takes you, um, yeah, going back is is hard, if not impossible. You know, one of the things I really like about this conversation is that it helps me see, it's, it's funny, it helps me understand a sensibility I've, I've always had about religion and other people I know. And in, in fact, I kind of can track it a little bit in terms of a certain, a certain sort of sensibility, which is a way of enjoy, a, a being willing to enter into a ceremonial situation, an engagement with a religious teacher, a conversation with a guru, a system of thought, a system of practice, uh, a ritual space, but to kind of maintain more of the attitude, not of the joiner. And it's really more like the kind of attitude that people bring to these events, particularly when they're really looking for or they're open to the full transformative experience, which is that you're going to put yourself in a situation where even your beliefs about the world may be challenged and that maybe the more you can actually allow the local belief system or the local set of images and ideas and, and feelings to uh, absorb you, then you're just going to have a better time. You're just going to have more fun. And it doesn't mean that you know, you're just treating the religious event as just an opportunity for fun, although it can be that. It can just be sort of like you know, mystic slumming, uh, there, there is a, there's also a way in which that, that says something deeper about how these events change people in terms of d developing your own capacity to have the courage to enter into unusual environments, play by the rules that are coming towards you on the fly, trust yourself, and trust that you're not necessarily going to get caught, even if it's a super intense experience. You know, so if you if you if you're not worried about it, it's, it's fine to talk to Scientologists. They're not going to take over your brain. It can actually be pretty interesting. I've had some great conversations with Scientologists. You know, or I've you know I've done the e meter. It's cool. Like I'm up for it. You know, but and that's an attitude that I always kind of wondered what it was. But it's really an experience design fans' attitude towards 
religious stuff as kind of experience design. So it's I, I, I really it's a it's a weird experience for me because I can kind of see backwards with these new terms that um, we're coming up with. But we've been talking about these three fascinating zones that you that you looked at the the wilderness uh, trips, the kind of avant-garde funerals, and the uh, sex clubs. And we've had some folks connected to that. You talk about Kinky Salon in one of your uh, one of your talks, and we've had Polly Superstar uh, on the show. She's a, a good friend of mine, and and that was another example of of kind of rules where um, Kinky Salon was a very very interesting. Uh, it's still going, so I should say in the present tense, but, you know, a, a very interesting experiment with taking some of the social values of a sort of Burning Man cacophony world, bringing it into a sex party, empowering women, developing mechanisms for people to feel safe that are invisible enough for people to feel transgressive and naughty, and how to and weave in costuming and themes and, you know, really a very interesting experiment. And I was really uh, happy to see that one of your, the, the, the place that you were uh, looking at, the Dirty Gentleman um, in New York, had sort of actually used some of their rules, some of their, their uh, recipe, if you will, uh, changed it in, for their own vibe and their own, and their own style. But it, it, it does really seem to point to that place of how the rule set or how the, the capacity of the experienced designer or however you want to call it, the event thrower, to inculcate certain mores, certain attitudes, certain they, rules aren't quite the way I think, kind of ethical norms in a way that then allows things to happen that, again, almost seem the opposite of ethical norms or rules or recipes. So could you talk about that a little bit in, the, in that context? Sure. Yeah. Well, so first, a, a, a brief correction. Uh -oh. um, so I, I no, it's okay. It's a very minor one. Um, <laughs> I, just because, you know, you want to make sure everyone is credited and, you know, beautiful little bespoke systems are understood in the way that they crafted them. Um, so the um, uh, I looked at two different groups in New York um, that host kind of sexually permissive events. One of them was um, the Dirty Gentleman, um, and then the other one is Gemini and Scorpio. And it's Gemini and Scorpio that has, uh, you know, kind of licensed the kinky salon rules. Gotcha. Um, the Dirty Gentleman, uh, the Dirty Gentleman operates kind of more on a. Um, bit of a membership system. And so people kind of become known in the context of um, the society. Uh, yes. And there, there is a kind of costume and pageantry component, um, but how, and, and their focus is actually on this notion of manners um, and what does it mean to, to have excellent manners in a context in which you're right, you're doing things that don't seem polite because they are naughty um, and dirty. Um, but if you, train people through very kind of subtle fashion through the um, aesthetics of the experience through the whole invitation process um, how does that make it easier to negotiate with each other around what, what you might want to do with each other um, sexually in terms of sexual play once you're at the event and so they kind of take that perspective in, in terms of this like full world building in order to create a civility um, where you know compare it to being at a bar and trying to ask a stranger out, there's no standards for civility there that are going to leave everybody feeling okay about that interaction. Um, so I was, I, yeah, so I kind of looked at all of the nuances of that and how you manage the, the social risk that is associated with that. And it usually 
involves mitigating some other risks that are involved. I don't know if I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, yeah, it does. I mean, I'm I'm just I'm, it's interesting that whole uh, again the it's you know to live outside the law you must be honest. There's a weird way that these rules of behavior or civility uh, actually reappear within these transgressive zones in all sorts of ways. And the the more intentional you are about them, it seems like the farther you can take um, the experience. But but maybe maybe there's other things. What 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 did you really draw from that from the from your look at at sex parties in terms of these sort of general ideas that you were developing this ru- this bigger rule set for how to create transformative events? Um, I think the biggest thing I took, the biggest thing I took specifically from um, the Dirty Gentleman is that like, yes, they wanted to create a permissive um, sexual atmosphere, but that there was, there was a, a larger purpose to the gathering in terms of creating notions of civility among people that could bleed outside of the experience of just the gathering. And so having those deeper principles really uh, informed the gatherings um, in in a really beautiful fashion. Um, I'm trying to think of what else. I mean, there was a lot of uh, simple space design things, which, you know, if you overlook them could really be the downfall of your experience where they have, you know, one space where people can go and just kind of hang out and lounge and another space that tends to kind of heat up more in terms of activity. So being able to just physically move through the space in terms of dialing up and down what you're exposed to while you're there is huge. They also have their own currency system, which I think just the simple cues in terms of like, oh, I can't use money here, like not regular currency, um, cues people to behave differently. Um, and so having as many of those cues as possible, I think is really great. Uh, something that Gemini and Scorpio does, which is similar but different um, than the Dirty Gentleman, is that um, they have these parties where in the first hour, I can't remember exactly what the what the progression is, but you know, in the first hour is just like hanging out and chatting. In the second hour, you can kiss. In the third hour, perhaps you can remove clothing, so people can go and not be sure how late they want to stay. And if things get too heated for them, they can always leave. But then people end up staying longer than they anticipate. So there's this clear metric for dialing up and down your engagement, be it either through space or through time, um, and that's. That's one of the things that I learned uh, most clearly from the the permissive sex parties that I went to, and I thought was really masterfully executed by both of those instances. Oh yeah, fascinating stuff. I want to I want to move on to the the, the avant garde funerals. We've had a couple of uh, funeral folks on the on the show as well, and I'm particularly interested in something you 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 pointed out um, that a, a well uh, crafted funeral can produce this. Uh, experience you describe as active introversion. And I'm really mm-hmm. interested in that partly because a lot of what we're talking about here is social, social risk, the how do you engineer uh, social uh, manners? Um, how do you move together through spaces, uh, you know, trespassing, whatever. It's a, a lot of this stuff is, it re- relies fundamentally on the social. So this other element of active introversion as being part of these transformative events in light of the of the funeral just fascinated me. So I just want mm. to hear more about that. So, so in the case of funerals, um, you're either confronting the loss of somebody that you loved and or you're confronting the reality of your own mortality. And so I identified that as 
primarily being a situation of emotional risk. And so that the, the kind of chaotic emotional feelings that come up from, from loss and, uh, you know, existential dread are those components that you can't quite anticipate going into the experience, right? They're going to, they're going to, um, mess you up and turn you around in one form or another. And so I loved this, what I found Amy Cunningham, this one mortician that I, uh, interviewed a lot and worked with a little bit identified is just like giving people little things to do so that even if they're not ready to kind of share or express their feelings, the, those feelings are still welling up in them. And if they're static and they don't have anything to do or any way to engage, it can produce an uncomfortable experience in, in a way that is like not actually supportive or transformative. And so how can you give people little things to do so that they are actively engaged, but they're still introverted in their experience as they're kind of sorting out their feelings. Cause getting people, you know, I've been to so many funerals where you're sitting around trying to have small talk with people and it's the worst thing ever. Um, and as soon as somebody asks me to do something, it's much easier. And so Amy really focuses on giving people to things to do and giving them an active part. Um, even if it is not a speaking or overtly social part. And the more that I have um, started to get into practices around subtle energies, the more brilliant uh, I see that, that, this is especially around situations of emotional risk where if if you're static in a kind of physical way um, those emotions get stuck and so if if you can be doing something active it helps those emotions move around um, and shift and creates your own kind of intimacy with what you're feeling that can't happen when you're again don't have anything at all to do so this notion of app um active introversion and identifying when certain people in an experience, when they're having a very challenging experience and just need to move emotions around in them, just need something to do, need a purpose, need a focus, uh, I thought was just a really lovely touch that Amy emphasizes quite a bit. Oh, that's fascinating stuff. So you, you, so you mentioned uh, subtle energies here, and uh, um, I want to jump to your, your increasing interest in religion and the spiritual and the, you know, kind of contemporary new age or whatever you want to call the sort of, you know, smorgasbord of practices that are, you know, returning again, you know, after from the seventies when in new, you know, millennial digital guys. Uh, and you talked a little bit about, you know, that, the that one of the core elements for any transformative experience is risk. If you don't have risk, you're not going to, it's unlikely to do much, and those those risks can be emotional, they can be social, they can be legal, they can be physical. There's different ways of, of doing it. Um, but how does that enter into this kind of spiritual milieu, and how do how does it pr uh, provide the opportunity for what you call uh, spiritual trespassing or tr spiritual trespasses? Mm, yeah. Um... I feel like you're asking me to draw a straight line between those two things, and I, I'm not quite sure what the straight line is, but it's definitely the path that I've been walking lately. Um, after doing this, the research uh, for patterns of transformation, you know, I got, I kind of stumbled through this trap door into the spiritual that I wasn't necessarily looking for, and it's definitely been an area that I've dabbled in at different points in my life in terms of, you know, reading theosophical text or uh, exploring Buddhist meditation. Um, but I got more serious about it um, towards the end of doing this research. And that was how I found Jeffrey Kripal's work, I think, in a very kind of similar serendipitous discovery as that abandoned honeymoon resort that got 
sextant works going. Um, I got interested in astrology and I was interested in learning more about a particular astrologer who had spent a lot of time at Esalen. And so I requested a bunch of books from uh, the library about Esalen and ended up with Jeffrey Kripal's book. And it ended up having almost nothing about this astrologer, but I could not put it down. And I thought it was such a beautiful uh, encapsulation of alternative American spirituality. So I've been, you know, exploring um, astrology, uh, ayahuasca over the past several months have been getting into different practices around subtle energies. And it just seemed like such a natural flow. And um, so I, you know, gave an opening keynote talk at the Immersive Design Summit in San Francisco just a few months ago, and realized that this is probably the next chapter of my work where I had been, you know, doing this urban trespassing, then I looked at the nature of transformative social experiences, and now I'm doing spiritual trespassing. And I call it trespassing just because they seem like the places that you can go through these spiritual practices feel like places that perhaps in past manifestations of society, we went to more regularly, and it was more of a standard practice of the culture to go there. But now, uh, you know, it, it takes us kind of weirdos and oddballs to go exploring these places, and they feel derelict in a similar way that some of the locations that Sextant Works created experiences and felt derelict and, and unloved and overlooked. And so um, I don't know where those adventures are going to take me, but I am, I am knee deep in them. Um, and it's been really delightful. Um, well, that's one of the interesting tensions in this is, is, is I think that the element of risk is important, but so is that element of the, of the derelict or the, the marginal or the unused or the, the unrecognized. And, you know, that's one reason that people have been drawn to the occult as the modern people have been drawn to the occult, because it's what esoteric scholars call a, a wastebasket. It's sort of like where they put every, everything else that we couldn't really fit into religion or science or uh, uh, civil society. You just kind of like shove in there. So you got you got you know, you got Bigfoot, you got Theosophy and ceremonial magic and Freemasonry and da 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 da. And, you know, and even though all these things are connected in all sorts of ways, there's an aspect of them that's sort of pulpy or or marginal. And right now in our culture, like what's marginal, what's not marginal? Everything's a long tail. Everything has a Facebook group associated with it. I mean, it's it's really hard to see. And, you know, in physical space, it's pretty clear. That's a derelict building. There's a chain link fence around it. There's no lights. It's broken down. There's broken glass. You know, I know what that is. And that could be the site of an amazing experience or a ritual or, you know, a drug event or something like that. But in cultural space, it's sort of, it's it's increasingly unclear what those things are because there a lot of things are being sort of drawn into the the main fray including you know ayahuasca even even more than astrology like astrology is still you know kind of dirty <laughs> you know even among like someone who's into like esotericism or something you say yeah i'm really into astrology like oh yeah well i don't know about that i mean I'm a fan, but I, you know, I don't even talk about astrology too much on this show because it's like it really sets people off. It's yeah, no, it's amazing. I I went to the there was a show about Harry Potter, and um, you know, it was a exhibition about all of the original texts and materials from European culture that Harry Potter was based on. And the entire section that could have talked about astrology, like steered clear and just kept saying astronomy. And I'm like, these are astrological texts that you're displaying, and yet, like, even there. Um, it would not say astrology. So I, I, yeah, I have fallen in love with it. I would say that 
it depends on what communities you're talking to. A lot of the communities that I've been listening to that are relishing astrology tend to be queer communities. Um, and so, you know, is all of queer society still considered marginal? I'm not so sure, but we, we're eating it up and, you know, it is classy the way we do it. <laughs> so. no, no, that's really interesting. I mean, that's, that's coming up a lot lately. I mean, both of those questions, both, uh, I'm, I'm really psyched about this conference coming up in June here on, on queer psychedelia and really kind of recognizing like how central the queer experience has been to like not just esoterica but just edge cultures fringe cultures in general and what it feels like is happening now and I, you could to correct me my gut tells me that at kind of like on the other end of gay marriage of this like so much energy was put towards not you know, like the the that that queer experience and queer people were not fringe, not marginal, not weirdos. That they were just like you and me. They should have the the rights that you and I have. Da 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 da. da all that, which totally makes sense. But somewhere along the way, some of us, queer or, or not queer, were going. Uh, what happens with the like radical stuff, like all that yeah. edgy marginal stuff, and where do we put it? And you know, sometimes like living in San Francisco. Um, there have been years, not not so much now, but there have been in the past where I was like, man, is this stuff just going to go away? Is this just going to be gone? Like the the wit and the sass and the and the colorfulness and the and the challenge and the eros and it's just like I really hope not. And it feels no, it's not going away, but it almost seems like maybe part of the queer astrology or the queer that kind of approach. Uh, is is sort of a way to reclaim that aspect of queer experience in the modern world that kind of got sort of lost there, or at least visually, at least in terms of ideas. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think that that is a that is a good good hypothesis. I mean, in terms of like what's you know what's the practice in terms of like queer performativity. Um, a lot of the adjectives you use, I associate with that. And and it is transforming and it is kind of shifting in terms of like, well, how do we navigate our reality given, given our queerness? And these spiritual tools are great tools for um, recasting how we navigate our reality. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I think about the first shamanism course I took and I kind of stumbled into it um, on a whim because it was being offered at my yoga studio and um, you know, I learn how to shake a rattle and go on a shamanic journey. And I'm like, this is the easiest thing ever. Like, no wonder our ancestors did this for so long. And the relationship that a lot of those aesthetics have to, to queer identity is very close. When you think about who tends to be the religious leaders in, in most communities, you know, whether or not those are spiritually marginal communities or spiritually mainstream communities, like the, these are the queer folks. Um, and that's the thing that I think can get, you know, it, uh, now I'm rambling a little bit, but no. there's, there's a way in which spirituality creates a wonderful cover for queer identity existing out in the open in ways that straight folks um, will relate to through the spiritual component and just be completely blind to the queer component. And I think that that is a real power of um queer fluidity in terms of navigating all societies through history. Um, I think that that has been, you know, some of, some of our core survival techniques. Oh, um, that, yeah. That, that's uh, that's fascinating stuff. It's like a whole new, that's another whole other show. It is. Yeah. 
<laughs> you know, and uh, and then again, this uh, the, I think there's something true similar about that in in uh, in queer in queer psychedelia, and that's that's partly why I'm interested to see um, how that comes up. And I think one of the great thing, one of the uh, great contributions, if you will, so not the right word, but um, that queer spirituality can also provide to the kind of larger zone is that it it's able to play with tradition while subverting the tradition. It's able to play with like binaries, you know, like how gendered a lot of these traditional cosmologies are. And it's like, yeah, those are good terms. But at the same time, they're also mobile. They're also things that can be played with and and turned under. So there's a way of avoiding some of the static quality that can come in with the traditionalism that infuses so so much esoterica and so much spirituality. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. This has been quite a journey that we've been on. Thanks for <laughs> touching on so many interesting topics. I'm not quite sure where to take it from here or how much more time we well, have. Well, luckily, but... we're at the end. Ta-da! Yeah. So you did a Amazing. great job of, of, of summing it up. We did go to a lot of places, and uh, uh, we'll, we'll, we will talk a little bit more in a wrap-up afterwards that I will eventually post to the eventual Patreon page. It is coming, folks. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I encourage, you know, the whole Patterns of Transformation research is, is up online. So, you know, folks can go and dive in and see if that social software is useful for them. And um, I've loved seeing how people have put it to use in the wild. So that, uh, you know, you can look at all of that research and me putting that online as a gift. So that might be tracking back to an earlier question. And that's my ongoing generosity to all of these communities of practice. Excellent. Beautiful place. And well, Ida, thanks so much for joining me on Expanding Mind. It's been a pleasure. Until next week, keep your minds open. 